0: I can't go on. Hi, folks. I'm Alan Watt, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on December the 5th, 2012. For newcomers, as always, I suggest you make good use of CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com because there's lots and lots of free audios for download. And if you go into the com site, you'll also find transcripts for prints up, in English, in all the sites listed there, and you can see Alan sent in and there you'll find transcripts in other languages of the talks that I've given. Number two, it's all free, and I depend upon you, the, the listeners, to keep me ticking along here, hopefully. And uh, once in a while it misses a beat, mind you, and uh, I really need some help from you too. So you can buy the books, hopefully, and discs at com. And you can also donate and how to do it from the U.S. to Canada. Remember, you can still use personal checks or international postal money orders. You can send cash or use PayPal and across the world, Western Union MoneyGram and PayPal. And in the books I've got, remember, too, I go through uh, the occult symbols and so on, and from ancient history to the present. Lots of it's been copied into other books over the over the years, but I go into some some depth to do with it up to the present time to show you how the world is. Symbols, remember, can comprise a language, and all the old societies, regardless of what country they come from, understand the language of symbols. And what I do here is go through the history of the system you're born into, And your parents were, your grandparents too. It's a complete and utter system. Nothing has been missed in this system and it's to really to serve make sure that the mass of the public serve uh, the small dominant minority at the top. The, do- the dominant minority sometimes changes actually it was the same dominant minorities for a long time during the, the feudal eras and the Middle ages but then another group came in and took it over too uh, you find that different groups compete every so often but it's been the same group for quite some time and along with it they brought in all the left wing staff, the radical changes that you're running through right now in fact and of course they also got into world trade and uh, a world type government, that's where you're heading towards at one awful speed, because all the agreements really have been signed up through the treaties through the United Nations, and I go through some of the history of the organisation It first was formed to spearhead it uh, openly, that is, now that was the Royal Institute for International Affairs, private organisation based in London, uh, England, and then, of course, the Council on Foreign Relations, which is the, the, the branch name they use in different countries across the world. Every top politician uh, across the world are members of these, these organizations, and they've been uh, it's been like that for a hundred years. Presidents, prime ministers are always members of this organization. So whatever happens, you see, it doesn't matter left wing or right wing, uh, the guy at the top and his advisors around him are really in on the big plan for this world society. Not just a happy hands-across-the-sea kind of deal, it's a complete eugenically uh, controlled society, population controls, well, it's a big thing in it too way up there, and you'll find too that they really mean what they say they really, really mean what they say and never dismiss the, the, any of the articles you see coming out from top scientific meetings along with government bodies because they mean what they say when they, when they mean population reduction they mean it they don't ask for volunteers and they never have asked for volunteers and they simply go ahead and do it to the public as they've been doing since at least the 1950s and speeding it up since then because cancers, autism, all these things have skyrocketed since introduction of uh, not just uh, uh, the, f- the food that you're eating and all the chemicals and xenoestrogens you know, but also to do with the shots that you've been given as well. And they know this at the top. They've got incredible data. They kept secret for 30 years to do with the vaccine vaccinations themselves and it's only now come out of course in the last few weeks it's been published uh, across the internet back with more after this break And back, work cutting through the matrix. And over quite a lot of years now, I've I've gone into the big system and the nefarious things that go on. And often all you get really in the media is simply evidence of what you already suspect, but they never go into the causes of it, really, the real causes or or why. And when you find, for instance, when the male male sperm count is plummeting, it has been for 30-odd years or more, I mean plummeting, because the United Nations is very happily tells us this every year with their stats department. And uh, they'll come down and say, oh, it's down 70%, 80% and so on. And it's almost like a big hurrah. And uh, meanwhile, there's no crisis made about it. And when there's no crisis made about something, then you know, they know what's causing it. And it's meant to happen that way. Or they would, believe you me, they'd have to find out what was behind it if if they themselves were not at the top. And we know that population reduction is a big, big thing with those at the top. They're always on about it. Man-made global warming, too many people, all that stuff that they've ranted about since the days of Malthus, of course, only attacked on global warming afterwards. Basin article here, for instance, says male fertility is under threat as the average sperm count drops and it's dropped again. Reproductive health, the average man has fallen sharply in the last two decades. It's much older than that. A study has shown, a new study, uh, as the number and quality of sperm decreases drastically. And it says... A comprehensive study into the reproductive health of 26,600 men found sperm concentration has decreased by a third since the 1990s. It's actually lower than that because in the 1970s, uh, one of the British documentaries uh, did a a study on it, and they talked to top professionals in the States and elsewhere, and they were using young men about the age of uh, 18 to 20 from university, And they had been doing it for many, many years, and they found that there was very little uh, actual active workable sperm in those young guys, in fact. And that was the best of the group. The ones older had, had us plummeted. Anyway, it says the findings are so significant that experts, once again, you know, have warned action must now be taken to avoid significant fertility problems and average family size decreasing. The study which was carried out in France this time found that there had been a significant continuous 32.2% decrease in sperm concentration over 17 years. Uh, Numbers of sperm per millimetre of semen fell about 2% a year between 1989 and 2005. With researchers calculating the average 35-year-old man, he would see his sperm count reduced from around 73.6 million per milliliter of semen to 49.9 million. At the same time, the proportion of normally formed sperm declined by about a third, so even what's left uh, is is not the greatest start. They can't find his target, literally. And in Russia, for instance, uh, I've read articles too from Russia who have an awful problem right now. Um, they've found that a lot of the sperm is deformed as well two tails and so on. It's all, it's all uh, altered completely. This is writing in the journal Human Reproduction. The French authors said that the study was the first to identify a long-term severe and general decrease in sperm concentration and quality at the scale of a whole country. And, well, it isn't the first study, it's just that the ones aren't mentioned. They added, this constitutes a serious public health warning, and the link with the environment particularly needs to be determined. But going to see what's changed since the period before it, when it was a bit more healthy, what has been introduced since then in your diets, and how many more inoculations have you had. That's the first thing you look at, to get a detective story. What's changed? And your food. So that the, the scientists analyzed data from semen samples collected from the 126 fertility clinics throughout France. All the couples involved were seeking treatment because of female pro- problems rather than the obvious difficulties linked to sperm. Dr. Joel Lamoal, one of the researchers from the Institut de, de Ville Sanitaire in Saint-Maurice said, it says, the decline in semen concentration shown in our study means that the average values we have for 2005 fall within the fertile range for men, according to the definition of the World Health Organization. However, this is just an average. There were men in the study who fell beneath the World Health Organization values. Well, the WHO will be happy with that because it's part of the United Nations and they have the Department of Population planning in the United Nations for depopulation. And then it says, more promising, the study also showed the proportion of active or motile sperm rose slightly from 49.5% to 53.6%. The findings support other research showing similar drops in sperm concentration and quality in recent years. Some studies have suggested that environmental factors such as endocrine disruptors, chemicals upset hormone balances in the body, might be behind the trend. Now, we've been saying that for years and years and years. is one of the causes that go towards it amongst the others. And it's true uh, that uh, the endocrine disruptors are in uh, baby bottles or plastic and so on. And they know, too, between the, eight, the, the I think it was the eight to 12th week of pregnancy, in fact, uh, that uh, young males in the womb will never be quite normal young males if their mother's even taking too much of this, you know, estrogen or artificial uh, synthetic estrogen that comes through her makeup and, and what she uses on her uh, cosmetics and so on. Uh, and also comes in plastic bottles from pot bottles and all that kind of stuff, too. Anyway, Dr. Lamol said the impairment in the quality of human uh, gametes, male sperm and female eggs) can be considered as a critical barrier marker of effects for environmental stresses, including endocrine disruptors. First, this is because uh, gametes are the very first cells from which human beings are built up during their lifetime. According to theories about the developmental origins of health and diseases, early exposure may have an impact on adult health. And these effects can be passed down generations by the way the impact inherited DNA she added. So it alters your DNA structure and you pass it on. It can be worse on the next one, for instance. If you go back to the soy studies that they did, they're all modified. Even in animals, they found that it was generally that the second generation uh, that were on them inherited from the first generation. Uh, they'd have lower sperm counts and the third generation would be almost sterile, some completely sterile doesn't have that in this part here. A national monitoring system access to French sperm quality is now being planned by the scientists. I'll also put up this other article. It's actually from the study itself. You can read it from uh, the actual study and and also... Another article too from the British Medical Journal goes back a, uh, to 1992, and they were doing the same kind of investigation then, and they have quite a, a good article on on that. I'll put that up too tonight for those who are interested in the declining populations. Now, apart from all of that, you've got you've got some definite physical changes in a lot of men. Something about it is happening. And you see it more and more as people pop up to about 18, you, you really start noticing them and start going into the workforce. And uh, they're losing shoulders. Some of them are more effeminate definitely than, than they had been previous generations. And something's definitely going on. And I really put it down myself, not just to all of the xenoestrogen and so on, but also to the inoculations too. When you see that the biowarfare industry, uh, a lot of these big pharma companies that do vaccinations and so on, came out and, and got built up during World War II, and their initial um, investigations were into biowarfare techniques. And I, I mistrust these characters completely in all the vaccinations. I think it's so far advanced, to be honest with you, and and they can really predict what they're going to do with them, and they know the long-term effects as well, and even second, and third generations. Anyway, this is an article here. This is long-term follow-up of transsexual persons undergoing sex reassignment surgery. This is a study that's been done in Sweden, one of the first big studies on it, by departments of neuroscience and psychiatry and so on, and it says. It says the treatment for transsexualism is sex reassignment, including hormonal treatment and surgery aimed at making the person's body as congruent with the opposite sex as possible. Meaning almost, you know, kind of like a, like something else, but not quite, because you can't, you know, you just can't do it. There's a dearth of long-term follow-up studies after sex reassignment. So, testament mortality, morbidity, and criminal rate after surgical sex reassignment of transsexual persons and they did a population-based match cohort study. This is all 324 sex reassigned persons, 191 males to females, 133 females to males in Sweden, 1973-2003 random population controls were matched by birth year and birth sex or reassigned final sex respectively. And it says uh, hazard ratios and so with 95% confidence intervals for mortality and psychiatric morbid- morbidity were obtained with Cox regression models, which were adjusted for immigrant status and psychiatric morbidity prior to sex reassignment. The result says that overall mortality, the death rate, uh, suicide and so on, for sex reassigned persons was higher during follow-up. And it gives you the percentage and so on. Uh, rather than for controls of the same birth sex, particularly death from suicide. It says sex reassigned persons also had an increased risk for suicide attempts and psychiatric inpatient care, as it did before, before all the surgery, right? Comparisons with uh, controls matched uh, on reassigned sex yielded similar results female to males but not male to females had a higher risk for criminal convictions than their respective birth sex controls. That's because they get pumped full of very high doses of testosterone, for one thing. It also says, conclusions, persons with transsexualism after sex reassignment have considerably higher risk for mortality, suicidal behavior, and psychiatric morbidity than the general population. Our findings suggest that sex reassignment, although alleviating gender dysphoria, may not suffice as treatment for transsexualism and should inspire improved psychiatric and somatic care after sex reassignment for this patient group. In other words, their, their suggestion is to put more money uh, and simply give them lots of therapy for the rest of their lives, basically. Which they probably got if they hadn't got the, that done in the first place. And then I've got this one too. And it's, uh, it says, although I know that some will regard this as hate speech, it says, the author says, and a lack of compassion for those who are clearly suffering, I think it's important to get out the other side of the story. The dangers of sex reassignment therapy have to receive some attention, especially since the mainline media refuse to do so. Sex reassignment therapy remains a highly controversial practice amongst the psychiatric community. Paul McHugh, the chairman of the Johns Hopkins Psychiatric Department at Johns Hopkins University, concluded that to perform such changes on a gender-confused individual was to cooperate with a mental illness rather than trying to cure it. And after he came out with that, too, the colonists closed down their gender clinic there because it's true, there 's still a psychiatric disorder. Back with more after this break. Hi, folks. I'm back. We're cutting through the matrix, and I've talked about this big system. Uh, as I said, the Milner Group was this group that came out at the late end of the 1800s. They were involved in creating the Boer War, in fact, and their idea was to, again, in collusion with the Cecil Rhodes Foundation, uh, was to take over all the resources, the rich resources across Africa and eventually the rest of the world. The Collude together. They've formed the Royal Institute for International Affairs, still on the go today, private organisation, and they're still at the same goal for world governments. And uh, scientific uh, teams work underneath them. They have hundreds of think tanks that work on all kinds of uh, sociological problems and so on to do with governing all of us and manipulating the cultures, etc., etc. And the Council on Foreign Relations, as I say, is simply uh, the, one of the American branches. And they also have CFR in other countries, too, now across the world. But the original idea was to use Britain, which was conquered then, to use Britain and the British Empire as the embryo or the nucleus and the basis to, to plan for a world government and simply add more countries to it. And... Um, they did it by setting up the League of Nations after World War One, and they set up the League of Nations uh, to, to bring this job around through treaties and agreements that would bind countries closer together. And even at, in World War, at the end of World War One, when they set it up, they even had a department then of population control, and they also had one to do with inoculations that was top of their list to inoculate everybody across the planet. Uh, eventually, into adulthood, when you get boosters every year, I mean, these guys were really high in eugenics, big time. Believe you me. And they wanted to to bring in a society of obedient, uh, passive people. But they they said themselves, like uh, Charles Galton and Darman, for instance, uh, that they wouldn't change themselves because they had to remain wild, like a wild man. Keep all your survival capabilities because you'd be steering planet Earth. The captains of the ship, the rest of the public wouldn't need it because the government and their agencies would be creating the culture, monitoring all of us, and uh, and uh, indoctrinating us all into the perfect, happy slaves. Then they brought World War Two in to get at the next step, and that was, of course, the United Nations... And through that, through, through all their massive non-governmental organizations that work underneath them, they would pressure governments, lobby governments, until that was the new democracy. That's what the new democracy is. Uh, an average person has no voice at all. It doesn't matter if you vote or not. It's simply the, the lobby groups that lobby governments, and there's thousands of non-governmental organizations working full-time, the build the, the top get full-time pension packages, a whole lot, uh, to do this, this radical change. And that's the whole key to it, radical change. Is what they planned because the dominant minority wanted radical change to destroy all that was the old cultures. And through these trade deals, they would, they would initially uh, bind continents together like the European Union and then the North American into into a complete Americana uh, agreement too and had free trade negotiations with, with Canada, Mexico and the US and then NAFTA uh, for the North American Free Trade agreements. And they're still pushing, it's uh, still being gone on the go yet today. Most of it's already done, they haven't released it to the public yet. But eventually it's to bind us all together over the years, step by step, into one big conglomerate. And, of course, the Far East Pacific Rim region was to go under the dominance of China, including Australia, New Zealand and a few other countries. And then, of course, through more trade agreements, you would bind them even closer until you got world government so we're already in NAFTA you see for North American free trade agreements and the next part of it was the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I've mentioned this before. This article is from Salon and it says the biggest trade deal you've never heard of. It says a huge but little known trade agreement could transform America's foreign relations and why it matters and what it is. It says President Barack Obama uh, Um, And the rest of them, of course, all met uh, quite a few times. And, And the first time was 2010, November 14th. And they actually signed a secret agreement. They wouldn't tell the public what it was all about. And everybody that took part was, uh, uh, Prime Minister Noatso Khan of Japan, Vietnamese President Nguyen Minh Triet, Prime Minister uh, Julia Gillard of Australia, Chilean President Sebastian Panera, Prime Minister Lee Tsien-Lung of Singapore, President Obama, Prime Minister John Key of New Zealand, Sultan Hassan Bolkaya of Brunei, President Alan Garcia Peru, Malaysian Deputy Prime Minister M- Miyadin Yassin, and it's, and, uh, they all met together on this. And it says, if you listened to the debate last night between Barack Obama and Mitt Romney on foreign policy, you would have had a, a great deal on Israel, Iran, and Libya, and a bit on China. The two rivals even touched on education policy, military spending, and tax cuts for the wealthy. What you would not have heard was any mention of what could potentially be the most significant foreign and domestic policy initiative of the Obama administration, which is the Trans-Pacific Partnership. This agreement is a core part of the Asia pivot that's occupied the activities of think tanks and policymakers in Washington, but remain hidden by the tinsel and confetti of the election. But more than any other policy, the trends the TPP represents could restructure American foreign relations and potentially the economy itself. Why isn't trade a part of the election? After all, in 1992, Ross Perot made the last successful third-party run for the presidency, mostly on the strength of his anti-NAFTA rhetoric. Today, however, on the, the core question of these trade agreements, the parties basically agree. President Barack Obama's pledge pledged to double U.S. exports as a core policy goal, and the Democrats' platform listed TPP as a historic high-standard agreement that will help accomplish this. The GOP platform pledges that the Republican president will complete negotiations for a trans-Pacific partnership to open rapidly developing Asian markets to US products. Both party leaders argue that experts are one key, only one key to creating high quality American jobs. But there's another side to it. Another side too. And I'll get back on that so we come back from this break. Listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi, folks. I'm Alan Watt, going through the, the this, this particular Trans Pacific Partnership that's been kind of hush hush and kept really kind of in the sidelines of news. And it's like all the other ones that went before it, even opened up trade to China, remember, too. And it was set up by the Royal Institute of International Affairs, all of these things, and the CFR. Even the CFR admitted in Canada that they were the ones who drafted up the whole amalgamation thing for the NAFTA organization. They drafted it up and gave it to government. So it's probably the same bunches behind this because it all stems right back, as I said, 2 so they're all Institute for International Affairs and Council on Foreign Relations. And part of it, too, is when you sign on with countries, the so-called first world countries must uh, help finance business in these other countries. Forget jobs and selling stuff to these countries. It's more like importing stuff from those countries and even giving out the money to build them hospitals, schooling, and all the rest of it. Massive sums of money. We're still doing that for China, even though it's the main producer on the whole planet right now. And they can pollute as much as they want to. They're they're exempt from that for 20 years, and then they can extend it for another 20 years if they want to, 200 all the guide rules. So it's a one-way thing. It's, It's money going out of your country, and then you must bring in their imports, and because uh, uh, you've helped set up their, 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 their corporations to make those those things in the first place. And you're guaranteed to buy them. And also, puts, as you've seen, as uh, happened with China, for instance. It's put jobs out uh, of the way for America altogether, Canada and so on. It's just decimated the factories. Anyway, this is ongoing. And it says, a TPP is negotiated by an agency called the Office of the United States Trade Representative. An agency. As with well, other such agreements, Congress must vote to approve it, most likely under a fast-track provision that prohibits any amendments and limits debate, like, a, like a, an omnibus bill. Trade, though constitutional congressional prerogative, is now firmly in the hands of the executive branch, and trade negotiations have become a venue for rewriting wide swaths of domestic uh, non-trade policy traditionally determined by Congress and state legislatures. The current USTRs are former Dallas mayor and former corporate lobbyist named Ron Kirk. Uh, Michael Froman... A deputy assistant to the President and Deputy National Security Advisor for International Affairs is also heavily involved. Froman is a disciple of former Treasury Secretary Robert Rubin, who followed him to Citigroup and head the Obama administration team in 2008. According to journalist Matt Tabby, uh, Froman apparently led the hiring of Tim Geithner for the Treasury Secretary role. The philosophy behind these international agreements thus followed the model laid down during the Clinton administration. And it goes back to how the same thing happened when they brought NAFTA through when Bill Clinton was in. But it really—it's mind-boggling when you go into the kind of money it's going to cost and what the last one NAFTA cost. It says NAFTA itself cost over five million jobs, with 42,000 factories closed. 42,000 factories closed just just in NAFTA. A modest trade surplus with Mexico was replaced with a large persistent deficit. As documented in the selling of free trade, NAFTA its new investor protection dramatically increased the ability of corporations to outsource entire factories to Mexico, which reduced union bargaining to leverage. The era of wage uh, declines and pension cuts did not begin with NAFTA, but the agreement and a wave of similar pacts that replicated its terms were contributors to the decline of bargaining power of the American worker. And then they brought in, of course, the the free trade uh, deal with the GATT Treaty for China, and then again the rest of the factories just left the country as well. So this is an ongoing part of it, folks, and and you pay for it all. You subsidize the countries that that will send their exports to you. You subsidize them to the hilts for that. That's part of the whole deal. And it goes right back, as I say, to the Royal Institute for International Affairs. They came up with the plan. They're still behind it. And the massive branch worldwide council on foreign relations. Also, for people in Ontario, it's, it's just amazing how they're always broke for everything, of course. But this is quite, quite the scam here, and it's called the Big Ontario Power Plant Question. Uh, will the Liberals ever explain their botched site elec- selection process for, for, for power plants? And I'll put this link up, I won't read it all, but the fact is, It's incredible how they come to the decisions where to put power plants. They don't use ones that are away from cities and towns and all that. No, they have to always make them a new place next to towns. And then they cancel the orders and pay like millions and millions of dollars out to the company that they've just cancelled from. Before they've even started anything. They've done it twice already with one power station. They've cancelled it twice in two different areas. And, and it's, it's just incredible. One of the can- cancellation costs was $140 million for nothing. This is what your government does with your money. Another one was $200 million. It's just astonishing. And they still haven't built anything anywhere. How can you, how can you make these deals? Is it written in the deal that it was cancelled, you've got to pay them $200 million? I mean, how do they work this kind of thing? It's just, just, just astonishing to me. And these are supposedly experts, of course. It were run by experts, right? And, and get bankrupted and got nothing to show for it, but somebody's got something to show for it. The ones that got all their, <laughs> their, their orders cancelled. Hmm. Now, Britain's so-called Snoopers Charter Bill is heating up debates amongst MPs as Parliament's reports on it are being prepared. The bill's initiator has just released an emotional verbal offensive against the opponents, equaling them to criminals. And it's the Home Secretary, Theresa May. And it says, who proposed the draft communications data bill in this June, accused, accused those of being against the bill of, of putting politics before people's lives. Typical political strategy. They have all their advisors there. That these things that have worked before. They always work again. Criminals, terrorists and paedophiles, they always use the same things, will want members of Parliament to vote against the bill. Victims of crime, police and the public will want them to vote for it. It's a question of whose side you're on, she told the son. The seat of the discord is the bill, which critics have dubbed a snoopers' charter. If adopted, it would force British communication companies to keep records of all their customers' contact data. Such a move would essentially turn law enforcers into big brothers, enforcers into Big Brothers, uh, as they would be able to find out who talks with whom, as well as when and where. They've already got all that, I mean. But anyway, this legislation would affect email, social network exchanges, Skype conversations, and other forms of communication. The recordings would not include the contents of the communications, though. The bill would also allow analysis of internet traffic and the breaking of encrypted communications for those companies operating outside of British jurisdiction or those that do not cooperate with the government. While proponents of the bill say it's necessary to allow police to cope with new communication technologies, critics see it as a threat to privacy and a waste of money as the program would cost an estimated $2.9 billion over a decade. Uh, Me argued, it's not snooping. It's not snooping, she says. No, she's going to re, reclassify. It's absolutely not government wanting to read everybody's emails. We'll not be looking at every web page everybody has looked at. No, you will, though, because you've got stores of them going back for years, and if you have to, you will. As for now, police and intelligence services can get access to information about mobile phone use, whereas there's no policy on internet data access. It can only be retained by providers. The rhetoric of may 's statements apparently aimed at liberal Democrat opposition to the bill and the party 's parliamentary leader Nick Clegg Clegg asked for the draft bill to be scrutinized by a joint committee before it submitted to Parliament. Earlier, British media reported that Clegg had plans to kill the bill following the joint committee report, which is set to be completed next week but i 'll go through regardless i haven 't seen anything getting stopped since two thousand and one because they 're on a roll you see. And this is to the, to the brave new world. I've got to know what everybody's doing all the time. Little, little old Jew. Tonight I'll even put up, uh, uh it's a good, uh, little talk on video, uh, and, uh, by a, a ex-NSA whistleblower, a guy who worked all his life in NSA, who said there is no privacy. They, they keep everything in bulk. Everything, everything, complete as well. Not just who you're emailing to, but everything's complete. And they keep it forever, basically. And not only that, too, I know for a fact they're doing whole countries now. I did the article last week about it. They're doing whole countries. So, uh, in blocks, just take the whole block stuff in real time and stash is gone. And they're building more of these big stash uh, sites in the States as we speak. Of course, we've read a bit of them before. Also... In this great time of, you know, experts and technologies, as all the Frankenstein's get together, the psychopaths, and they're paid by incredible money, mainly on warfare department uh, tasks and so on, but they're also putting up a, uh, a bio lab. And at Boston University, fourth level too, awaits risk assessment decision. After Boston Medical Center exercises right to regain its investment in the National Emerging Infectious Diseases Laboratory from Boston University, operations continue to run normally as a Biolab awaits a risk assessment decision from the National Institutes of Health to be issued before the end of 2012. The lab will not become fully operational. Risk assessment reports have been approved and the lab certified. We believe the process has been very thorough and blah, blah, The construction of the biolab was completed in 2009, and there's been a great deal of controversy over the risk it presents to the community since its goal is to study dangerous and an infection level 4 pathogens. If it receives approval to do so, the biolab will study SARS, anthrax, Ebola, pneumonic, pneumonic plague, and the 1918 H1N1 influenza which they have the live uh, ones now because I've done the articles years ago on the radio where they actually sent teams out uh, to, uh, to across the world. One group sent them to, off to Norway. Some Norwegians came over to the north of Canada and they actually dug up some corpses in the north of Canada uh, that still had the virus frozen inside the corpses. And so they have that live killer. And, of course, all the warfare departments were funding it because they want to get their hands on it and everything else because you can do an awful lot with that down the road if they have to. You know, if, if, you know, if we're not infertile enough, as you say. And it wants to bring us down to a very small population, remember, two all the top experts. And now, for those who have studied totalitarian societies, you'll understand the propaganda in the following article because this is uh, from the European Parliament. Now the European Parliament has uh, as It was set up to take over the countries that destroy sovereignty altogether. And, of course, that Rompuy at the top has even said that himself. He says it's the end of the nation-state, yada, yada, yada. And they want to completely amalgamate them all as little uh, provinces, you might say, of this super-state, the EU parliament. That means nothing to anybody except the guys who are getting the big fat paychecks like Rompuy. And... The, the, the indoctrination of processes for the children is incredible. I mean, I always go for the children. The Soviets did it. Then they went into the Young Communist League. Uh, you had the Hitler Youth in Germany. Uh, all totalitarian systems go, grab the youth, you see. So this article here is about making a film about the impact of the European Parliament could mean prizes, says Elizabeth Bowie. It says the Scottish Education, European Educational Trust has launched a competition, Our Europe, for secondary schools. Funded by the European Parliament and supported by Radio Lingua, it offers the opportunity to win an iPad for the winter school and a trip to Brussels they can meet all these stuffed shirts, you know. Teams are made up of four pupils, two from S3 and two from S6. Combined modern languages, modern studies and media, ICT, they're required to create a short film to raise awareness of the positive impact of the European Parliament on the lives of young people in the EU. Now, in other words, you get controlled to make it positive, not realistic. You see, whenever you get that nonsense, you're in a totalitarian system with massive propaganda aimed at the young, right? To enter the competition, our Europe, our people, our places, our parliament teams must submit a storyboard outlining the film they propose to make. They then submit an audio or video recording in which they to talk, they talk through their storyboard. Part of the recording must be in French, German, Spanish or Italian, and it should be presented by at least two students, one from S3 and one from S6. Recording, then it, it must be received and so on by February the 8th, 2013. The top five teams will progress to the semi-final early in March. They'll be invited to take part in a full-day workshop working with Radio Lingua, uh, media professionals, and SEET to create their film using iPads and other resources. It is two of the five semi-finals will be selected to go into the final in Brussels, where they will visit the European Parliament and present their films to an invited audience, including experts from European institutions and the media. This is the sort of stuff they did in the Soviet system. You know, they got all the top ones from the media because they are all working for government or pro-government, and um, and all you heard was the wonders of Lenin. You know, it all had to be everything that happened right up to the wall fell had to be going back to Lenin, how much of a genius he was, and all that kind of stuff. And it says the audience's vote will decide later the, the winner. So uh, this is standard massive propaganda, propaganda when you can't give an honest appraisal or give us your opinions. You make them um, all your opinions. No, it's going to be positive pro European Parliament. Something that nobody votes for, nobody wanted in the first place. But again, that was a plan, as I say, from the Cecil Rhodes Milner into the Royal Issue of International Affairs, and it's still on the go today for those who don't quite get it. Now this article two is about carbon permits, you see. Carbon permits. what a great boon for the con men like Rothschild who dreamed this whole thing up. Because it goes through his bank, you see, the private bank in Switzerland. The price of the EU carbon permits hit record lows today after the European Commission admitted that plans to backload 900 million tonnes of allowances will not be agreed by the end of 2012. I mean, you actually think they had 900 million tonnes of something, right? These are the permits they're talking about. They have this abstract thing of 900 million tonnes of, you know, that stuff that's maybe in there. At a meeting of the Climate Change Con- Committee, CCC, it's called. That's what you should call a communism CCC. On 13 December, member states will be asked to give their formal positions on the plans, but they will not be asked to vote on them, the commissioner said last night. So you can sell anything these days if you've got a good lobby group uh, and lots of financing to back you up. And you can give a good storyline to the public, a good scary, scary story. And, yeah, you can sell anything at all today. And... Also, put up a uh, 4,250% increase in fetal deaths reported to VAERS after the flu shot was given to pregnant women. This is a document received from the National Coalition of Organized Women, states that between 2009 and 10, the mercury-laden combined flu vaccinations have increased vaccine adverse events reporting systems and fetal death reports by 4,250% in pregnant women. Uh, Just astonishing. Of course, they keep mentioning thimerosal, the mercury uh, substances in them, but that's not all that's got to do with it, believe you me. These things are weaponized. This is outraged at the CDC's total disregard for human life. Ms. Darman accused the CDC of willful misconduct, saying that they are responsible for causing the deaths of thousands of unborn babies. She said that the CDC deliberately misled the nation's obstetricians and gynecologists and colluded with the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology to mislead the public by advertising the flu shot as safe vaccine for pregnant women when they knew fully well that it was was causing a massive spike in fetal deaths. See, it doesn't matter how many of, of, you know, us, you know, them, them, they call us them, they kill, it doesn't matter. Anyway, so in a letter to Dr. Joseph McCullough, Ms. Darman wrote, so that not only did the CDC fail to disclose the spiralling spike in fetal death reports in real time during the 2009 pandemic season as they cut the fetal losses, but also we have documented, documented by transcript Dr. Marie McCormick, Chairperson of the Vaccine Safety Risk Assessment Working Group on September the 3rd, 2010, denying that any adverse effects in the pregnant population during the 2009 pandemic season. So they were well aware of it. They had the... They had all all the, the the graphs and the spikes and the numbers coming in, but they kept denying it. Strange that too, for all those years, it was bad for pregnant women to get the flu shot and then suddenly, suddenly, and this people think it 's still science suddenly, the same science tells you, oh no it 's good for you now. they call it science it 's a joke, folks. Back with more after this break. Hi, folks, I'm back. We're cutting through the matrix. And there's a caller there, Jolie from North Carolina. Is it's still on the line?
1: Yes, hi, Alan. Hello. You know, I've been listening to you probably close to a year after wasting so many years listening to Patriot Radio and being spun off in all kinds of directions. and, And I really appreciate everything that you do. You just tell the facts without putting in all these emotional triggers um, to get people to spin off. But uh, I was planning on calling in tonight before you even started your program because of the state of articles I've seen on the Internet tonight uh, regarding the sperm count dropping. Yeah. Um, you know, Drudge Report, The Guardian, The Telegraph, Indian Express, even Prison Planet, all quoted that same experts, you know, that talked about the World Health Organization normal. What nobody mentioned, and I want you to comment on this in any of those articles, is that the World Health Organization normal has dropped from 60 million per per milliliter to 40 million to 20 million, now down to 15. And it all ties into what you've been saying, a new normal.
0: That's a new normal. And they've been the same with many other things too, of course. Uh, the World Health Organized, they know what's behind it because they're partly behind it too. And there was a, a Horizon a Horizon documentary you have to get a hold of from 1972, I think it was. And uh, they go through it then. It's the first study that was done in England and then went over to the U.S. and talked to uh, a woman who was the so-called expert at the time who took young male students every year for about 20 years some from the 50s, and she said from the 70s onwards it plummeted. She said some of the young men, the average young men at 18 to 20 only had 23% volatile sp- or working sperm, mobile sperm.
1: You're talking about the um, disappearing male.
0: Now, that's even before that. That was long before that was even done. This was a Horizon documentary, and I'll try and find a link to it for you. But uh, this was in the 1970s. It was the first program they ever did on it. And at that time... By the 70s, the average male uh, in the U.S. was down at 223% at working sperm.
1: Wow, and I mean, would would this tie in at all? I mean, we know it ties in with eugenics and depopulation, but I was just thinking about transhumanism. I mean, if they disrupt the very chemical that makes, you know, a male a male in seven weeks of pregnancy, they're they're actually engineering the population and disarming the the one element that could actually defend against this agenda.
0: Well, one of the guys who worked on this for years uh, was Charles Galton Darwin. You've got to read his book, The Next Million Years. He worked with all these top government agencies. He was a physicist himself, worked on the Manhattan Project. But he said that we can uh, make the, the male more docile, so they will not fight this world agenda. Uh, he says, by using hormone alteration, he said, techniques. And he says, when I put it in their food, we can inject it into them, he said. There's many ways we can get it into their bodies. And then it'll leave a passive male population that will not stand up for and fight. Yeah.
1: Well, I'm beyond shock and awe. I'm in the stage of being very angry. And I'm an older person, so I can see how males have changed. I'm, I'm in my 50s how yep. men have changed in, in the
0: past 20 years, even. Sure, absolutely.
1: It's yep. incredible to me, but I didn't know until I started listening to you and, and, and having all this put together, that it's, you know, combination of the water, the food, the chemtrail, all yep. of that, um, it's an assault.
0: It's a, it's a full-scale war, actually, Yep, Full-scale war, and again, through injections and everything else, they know what they're doing to us all. They're bioengineering the people, yeah. Thanks for calling. From Hamish Massial from Ontario, Canada, it's good night, May God or your Gods go with you.